Welcome to He Sang, She Sang, the show about opera from classical New York, WQXR. Today, we are talking about Verdi's Nabucco. We'll hear about how a chorus from this opera became Italy's unofficial national anthem. We'll also hear about how Nabucco got Verdi back in the opera game. And we'll speak with mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton, who's playing the role of Fenena in this production at the Met right now. I'm Marin Lazian. And I am Mike Schaub. And joining us today is Corey Ellison, a dramaturg at the Glyndebourne Festival and a member of the vocal arts faculty at Juilliard. Welcome, Corey. Thank you. Glad to be here. All right, so Verdi's Nabucco. Uh, Nabucco takes place in Jerusalem in the 6th century BC, and it basically tells the plight of the Israelites who are under the oppression of Nebuchadnezzar, who is the biblical king of Babylon, who was oppressing the Israelites. And uh, although he is an actual biblical king, character, it so happens that he's the only character in the opera that is from the Bible, although the situations in the opera and, and some of the types of characters are definitely of biblical prototypes. The, the first act takes place in Jerusalem, and we see the Hebrews being quite oppressed by the Babylonians. <laughs> But under the leadership of this very prophetic high priest named Zachariah, the base, a very inspiring figure. And there's also a love triangle involved. There is um, one of the daughters of Nabucco, a young woman called Fenena, who is in love with a an Israelite, Ismaele, who is a, uh, a warrior, a and they had fallen in love when Ismaele had been imprisoned in Babylon, and Fenena helped him escape, and now she's with him in Jerusalem. <laughs> plot is thickened by the fact that Fenena's half-sister, Abigaile, is um, not only in love with Ismaela as well, but she's kind of a bad person to be in contention with in a love triangle because she's extremely malevolent and vengeful and warlike and so on. Well, in the midst of this love triangle, in comes Nabucco at the end of Act One with his armies, and Zakaria threatens to kill Fenena to lash out against Nabucco and the Babylonians. But finally, of course, Ismaele intercedes 
and gives Fedena back to Nabucco because he loves her so much that he wants her to survive even if she has to go back to the Babylonians. And there goes all their leverage. That's right. There goes all their leverage. So then in Act 2, we find that Fenena is the regent of Babylon because Nabucco is off at war. At the end of the act, what what happens is that uh, Nabucco appears and he declares himself God. And we see right away which side God is on because immediately Nabucco is struck by lightning. And this sets off a bout of madness in him. And we see him then for the rest of the opera uh, until the very, very end. He's mad. And Abigail uses the occasion to trick him to sentence all the uh, Israelites to death. So Abigail is not actually Nabucco's daughter. Right. Uh, we find out. She that finds she, out. She finds out, right. <laughs> At the beginning of Act 2, she yes. finds out that she's actually the daughter of slaves. Right. Which, woo, that, that makes her even madder and more cantankerous. <laughs> now, is that, is that the reason that that's important? Why is it important that she's not really his daughter to this story? Because in some ways, other than other than revving her up a little bit. I've been trying to pinpoint Mm -hmm. how that really makes a difference here. Well, I think it magnifies her insecurity. Of course, she's already insecure because um, the man she's in love with loves her half-sister. So I think it really, you know, pushes a button for her. She wants that throne. She wants that throne to the point that she's prepared to really depose her own father. She's she is She's the older daughter. She is the older daughter, right. And she's not supposed to get the throne. That's right. right. Her yeah. younger sister's supposed to get the throne. Exactly. Exactly. So she is That'd on blow me out too. She, yeah, right. She's on a mission to, you know, sort of get rid of both her father and the young the younger sister. So is it a pure case of her being power hungry? There's a streak of madness in this family. Of course, you know, it's not blood uh ties that she has with Nabucco, actually, but... But it's the nurturing, right? Oh, the nurturing, or lack thereof. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but Abigail is just, you just feel is just a troubled person, an insecure and vindictive and deeply ambitious person. And then do you think that it, whatever the source is of that mm. disturbance for yeah. her, is that what brings her to the point of poisoning herself at the end and... and Killing herself? What happens in that final scene of Nabucco is is supposed to be a miracle. The statue of Baal is magically destroyed, and that brings about this uh, great conversion in both Nabucco and Abigail. Um, and they immediately repent and come over to the side of the Hebrew god. We're supposed to have the feeling, I'm sure, that because of that, that erases her entire very messed up vindictive life. And I think the conversion is meant to be miraculous. And Mm. it's something that I think audiences of that time um, were used to that kind of convention. For us, it probably is a little harder to swallow. When this premiered, when audiences went to see this for the first time, would they have had very distinct ideas about 
religiously who were the good guys and who were the bad guys in this case? Oh, absolutely. And as it turns out, in Verdi's time, this was incredibly timely and current, not for religious reasons, really, but for nationalistic ones. Verdi, of course, was born into the era of the Risorgimento, which was the great Italian uprising to free and unite the Italian peninsula under one king of their their own heritage, their own choosing, uh, Vittorio Emanuele. And Verdi was very caught up with that, and his career is almost inseparable with that happening in him. It's kind of... Uh, one of the things that really catapulted him to fame, and it was this opera, Nabucco, that did it. It was his third opera, and his first, Oberto, had been a modest success in 1839. And then uh, his second opera, Un giorno di regno, his only comedy until Falstaff, his last opera, was a miserable flop. And this one um, not only resurrected his career, but set him up as a a national hero, a national sort of standard bearer for the Risorgimento. Right, and he had sort of decided to throw in the towel after that second opera, right? He did, he did. He had had a, a very hard time. He was only in his later 20s. His wife, his first wife, Margarita, and his two infant children had died, and his second opera had been a flop. And he was, as you can well imagine, really in the mood to sort of pack it up and, and go home yeah. from Milan to Parma. The story goes that one day he just ran into the impresario of La Scala at the time, Bartolomeo Merelli, in the street. And Merelli said to him, oh, you know, I happen to have this libretto you might want to look at. We, I was trying to commission Otto Nicolai, who was the composer of uh, The Merry Wives of Windsor, the famous German operetta, but he didn't want it. But maybe you want to have a look at it. And Zverdi tells the story. He went home that night, and he spent a sleepless night and ended up, opened up the uh, the libretto right to the page of the famous Va Pensiero chorus, chorus of the Hebrew slaves, and was powerfully inspired and stayed up all night and read the libretto three times until he almost memorized it, he said, and that got him off to uh, to become inspired again to compose. Now, we have to take what Verdi says about his own life with a, a little bit of a grain of salt because he was actually a great self-mythologizer. But it is definitely true that this is a thing that really put him on the map. It took him a really long time to actually write it, right? He struggled yes. with the inspiration to get going. He did. He did. He was quite depressed, of course, at the time. And he himself says, um, in a not a very self-mythologizing way, that he can, you know, he would compose a line one day and another line the next day, and so on and so forth. So, it took him quite a while. So, what was it about the Va Pensiero chorus? Why was the text to this piece so moving to him to rally him to start composing again? Well, it's a paraphrase of Psalm one thirty-seven by the waters of Babylon. And for Verdi, he was an agnostic, even though he wrote some incredibly great religious music along the way. But for him, what was inspiring was the idea of a populace in some kind of exile, a populace 
unable to rule itself under the oppression of a foreign dominator. And of course, at the time, the part of Italy that he was living in was ruled by the Austrian Empire. And um, the Italian populace was really chafing against that. So he saw in this an expression of patriotism, of, of longing for freedom. It proved, of course, that his response to this chorus was echoed by that of the Italian populace. It became, not only put him on the map immediately as a great composer and a great hero, but has remained sort of a virtual, unofficial Italian national anthem. The appeal of it, I feel, is so visceral. There's something about the melody is just this this sweeping, soaring, very moving melody in and of itself. And one of the extraordinary things about the piece is that it's practically all in unison, which is really something, and it sounds easy to do, but in fact, it's one of the most difficult things for a chorus to do, and to do it well requires a great chorus like the Metropolitan Opera Chorus that can do unison in this perfectly balanced and perfectly clean way. But also, one of the incredible things about it is in the middle of the piece, it breaks out into this six-part harmony from unison. It just blossoms into this, you know, like technicolor (laughs) harmony. And then it goes back to the very understated uh, unison. There's just something in and of itself that whether you know anything about this piece or not, it is going to move you. And it's funny, there is the complexity of a chorus singing in unison, Mm -hmm. but the effect of unison singing lends a sort of simplicity Mm -hmm. to the sound of the piece. And that's not the only time that Verdi uses, brings in some simplicity into the music mm-hmm. and into the orchestration in this opera. There's the, the prayer that Zacharias oh, sings. Yes. Basically, the entire orchestra is silenced with the exception of the lower strings. I think, it's, is it six cellos to begin with? Yes, the aria Vieni o Levita, the bass aria uh, that Zacharias sings, this sort of prophecy prayer. There are a lot of prayers in the libretto of Nabucco and in the music. And it is just this uh, beautifully rhapsodic, chamber-like, andante prayer. It's very, very beautiful. So you mentioned Otto Nikolai. Mm -hmm. He really didn't like it, right? (laughs) Much to our advantage, Otto Nikolai didn't like it. He tweeted about it, right? (laughs) I'm sure he did, or he would have. He would have. He actually published uh, this. He said, Verdi's operas are really horrible. (laughs) 
<laughs> he scores like a fool. Technically, he's not even professional. And he must have the heart of a donkey. And in my view, he is a pitiful, despicable composer. Nabucco is nothing but rage, invective, bloodshed, and murder. He didn't have a lot of people that agreed with him on that, right? <laughs> no, he didn't. Spoken like a true German, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, in the 19th century, the German composers looking down their noses at the Italians. And all I can say is that, um, you know, we hear a lot more Verdi these days still than we ever have heard Otto Nikolai. We do. And the piece that he went on to compose mm-hmm. instead of Nabucco at the time, uh-huh. I fear, did not uh, no. meet with the same success. No. It was and a flop, right? It was, it was a flop. Nabucco was just, it was sort of the perfect opera at the perfect time. It was like the stars were aligned. It wasn't only Verdi's first real flash of genius, but... It was just, it spoke to Italy in a, in a really powerful way. And it became popular sort of across the map. I mean, mm-hmm. there were all fashion and cuisine. There were all these dishes and um, hats and shawls that were named after Verdi after Nabucco yes. came out. So His uh, surname, amazingly, was an anagram for Vittorio Emanuele, Re d'Italia, Victor Emmanuel, King of Italy who was the figure that the Italians wanted to unite under. And, I mean, that's just crazy coincidental, but it didn't hurt, you know, that that the populace could go around yelling Viva Verdi and, um, you know, not be bothered by the Austrians for saying that. Right. In his personal life, was he patriotic? Was Oh, gosh, he was the ultimate patriot. He was um, an Italian through and through. And later on, when the country did become reunited, he served in the Italian Senate and Parliament. He was a great philanthropist, he and his wife. And, um, of course, very famously, they endowed the Casa Verdi in Milan, which is an old-age home for Italian musicians. To this day, it uh, survives on the endowment from the Verdi's, and they're buried there. They're entombed there. So, yes, he is, is one of the great... Uh, patriots and great humanists among composers. Does that come through in the music of this opera? Because one thing that's interesting is that some of the most powerful declamatory music is sung by the the supposed bad guys. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? And where where other than that chorus can we find his patriotism and his love of Italy in the music of Nabucco? I think mostly you find it in the music of the Hebrew chorus. They are, in a way, the most human characters in the whole piece. The characters are a little bit cardboard. They really are. But Verdi, I think, manages to crawl under the skin of the Hebrews more because he sympathizes with them, and in his head, they're the Italians. You had mentioned earlier that this is a story of redemption. Mm -hmm. Who gets redeemed, and how does that happen? Well, the characters who get redeemed are the villains, Nabucco, the title character, and his just crazy evil daughter, Abigaile, which is one of the most difficult uh, soprano roles, almost crazy difficult. Very few people in the world at any time really dare to sing it. And a few very good singers have declined the offer to sing it. Oh, yeah, like who? 
Dame Joan Sutherland, oh, yeah. I believe, turned that down. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Lantine Price, mm-hmm. I think, was another person who wow. turned down this role. Oh, yeah. And as a matter of fact, of course, one really interesting thing is that this opera also is important in Verdi's life because it's uh, the way that he got together with his second wife, Giuseppina Streponi, who was a very, very famous prima donna at the time that Verdi was sort of a nobody, you know. She was the toast of La Scala, and at one point, the projected production of of Nabucco faltered. They were going to cancel it. Streponi, who at this point didn't even really know Verdi at all, stepped in and said, no, let's do this opera. I'm a star, and this is is a scenery-chewing, rabble-rousing role that I want to do. And she actually was instrumental in saving the premiere of Nabucco. The irony, of course, is that she went on to sing it everywhere, and her career ended quite early um, because of extreme vocal fatigue. She actually stripped her gears on singing the role of Abigail. (laughs) And actually, some years later in Paris, when both uh, she and Verdi happened to be in Paris, they got together and were together for the rest of their lives. She was sort of a has-been teaching voice in Paris, and he was this big rock star, uh, world-famous composer. So he loved her even when she lost her diva appeal. Absolutely. Mezzo-soprano Jamie Barton is playing the role of Finena, Nabucco's daughter, at the Met right now. I had a chance to speak with her about the role and about this production. Fenena is such an interesting character. There is growth from the time you see her at the very top of it to the very end. She is the daughter of Nabucco, so she is a princess. Um, She is kind of, in a way, cast opposite of Abigail, who is definitely the warrior princess. She's the one who comes in all fierce with a sword and, you know, ready to take over everything. Fenena is the softer one between the two of them. She is the classic ingenue in the beginning. But even from the very first trio that we have with Fenena and Abigail and Ismael, she doesn't actually, it's not a love trio really for her. It's, it's the spark of the, the, the interest in the Hebrew faith that it, she's really singing about. So she grows from this kind of lover plot line into a stronger plot line. She uh, stands up to her father at one point and says, well, if you're going to kill them, I am one of them. You're going to have to kill me too. After she converts. Yes. Yes. yes, Directly after she converts, in fact. And then in the end, she, her final aria is her walking towards the very uh, real chance of martyrdom. Uh, walking in this production towards the gallows. And she is ready to sacrifice her life for what she believes in. And so when you get to her aria, you've heard 
so many arias from so many different people in this particular show uh, that are absolutely fantastically bombastic. I, I'm I'm a little gaga for them, but you get from Thanana not a bombastic aria at all. She goes from this group singing to actually a really beautiful prayer-like resolution of an aria. Um, that is interesting to me, considering she's getting stronger as a person, stronger in her faith, in her beliefs. And what she ends up in is this serenity. Maybe the musical message is that there's plenty of strength in that serenity. I think so. So Nabucco is set in Jerusalem during the 6th century BC. It's a historic, religious, biblical story. Is there anything unique about playing this kind of story, any different way that you think about your character because it's removed in that way? The themes within this, within the plot, they are set in ancient time. This is a story from that era, not from yesterday. But these things come back around. These situations, these feelings, these the core issues are are very relevant, I think, to our daily lives. The saying goes, history repeats itself. And politically, we can see this throughout the course of time. You have the chorus like Va Pensiero. Um, there's a reason this chorus originally started with people stomping their feet and wanting to hear <laughs> it again. This is, this is not just uh, singular to our experience, but has been since the inception of this particular opera. And I think we feel this as a people, the feeling of our hands being tied in a way. And I, I think there's something incredibly cathartic about sitting in the audience and being a part of that, because the audience is a part of that. You know, getting to be witness to that kind of translation of conflict, of angst, of whatever might be going on in your own heart. So that to me is something that I kind of latch on to. I try to see it less in the, the view or the scope of a story that I'm trying to translate from 600 BC. The interesting thing to me as an audience member and also as an actor is to put it in some sort of relatable uh, storytelling. And I think this one is particularly so, perhaps right now for many people. Yeah. It's also perfect opera fodder. Why? It's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's got all the grand themes. It's got, you need a love triangle. Great. You got a love triangle. <laughs> you need somebody who is, you know, a bit of a demagogue. Great. You got a demagogue. We got that too. <laughs> you, you need a good guy who is, you know, underrepresented. Zachariah, there you go. You know, it's got all of the elements to be the quintessential Verdi kind of opera, even before Verdi was really writing Verdi kinds of operas. Right. You know, this one, I, I've heard it described as it's a bit in primary colors at times. Hmm. And I agree, it is, but it, it still has the hint. You see the direction he's going. And I think it was like catnip to him a little bit. <laughs> I can see why. <laughs> Me too. Um, you've even got the madness and the lightning bolt to, oh, yeah. to boot, so why exactly. not? <laughs> um, in this production, you're sharing the performance with two legendary musical figures who have careers that have spanned decades. Um, you've got James Levine mm -hmm. and you've got Placido Domingo. Who? 
Yeah, who was that? Who's that? Who's that I, don't, I don't know these people. No. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Living legends, literally. Living legends. And here you are, not at the exact start of your career, but kind of at the beginning of your own long career. What's it like getting to work with these two particular musicians who just between them have an incredible wealth of experience, passion, knowledge, all of it. <laughs> well, first of all, your lips to God's ears on that long, long career. I, yeah. I certainly hope so, or at least hope to have the option. Yes. Um, to work with Domingo and Levine, uh, <laughs> it's it's unbelievable, quite honestly. Um, Placido and I got to do this in London last spring. So we, we got to have the first go at being father and daughter together on stage. And it was incredible to watch him work. I'm grateful for the time that we had in at Covent Garden for many reasons, but one of which is because I got used to being around him a little bit. I got more comfortable walking up to Placido Domingo <laughs> and saying good morning. <laughs> you know, it took a lot of courage to do that the first time. <laughs> and he's nothing but warm. He's such a wonderful colleague. It has been amazing to see his work with Levine, to see how they play off of each other. They've done so many performances together. I, I can't even quote the numbers. They've hundreds. Been, hundreds, right? literally yeah. hundreds. I think they've been through kind of every Verdi in the book that Placido could do throughout the you know, expanse of his entire career. They, they are a comfortable relationship. And that has translated to our rehearsal room. That translates to the performances. Levine is unbelievable. I met him about 10 years ago at Tanglewood as a student. And he actually introduced me to Verdi, really. So to be able to do this with him has been such an honor and such a pleasure. He also makes it so easy. He really does. How does he manage that? <laughs> There's this inherent trust that he has in the artists that he's on shows with, I think. He is really collaborative as a conductor. Not all conductors are collaborative. Some of them very much want you to be exactly where their baton is. But yeah. he's always checking in and seeing if this works and suggesting things if if maybe I, I don't have a suggestion of how to make it better. And the little tiny things he gives out make huge impressions on how the music goes, how it changes the storytelling from the musical aspect. So to combine my experience with getting to watch Placido Domingo have his experience with Maestro Levine, it's it's just been unbelievable. I, I kind of don't want to leave this process. <laughs> Luckily, I don't have to until January 7th. <laughs> I can only imagine what it's like for this one to end. It seems very special. Very much so. So you were not, you weren't exactly born into the world of classical music. Originally, you come from Georgia, is that right? That is correct. And you grew up on a farm? I did. Surrounded by bluegrass and maybe some classic rock. <laughs> that is absolutely correct, yeah. How did you find your way into this crazy, crazy world? <laughs> well, I can blame it on my family a little bit. Oh, um, that's great. <laughs> Can't we all? Go on. <laughs> they, uh, 
my family does and did play bluegrass. Uh, a lot of my cousins and aunts and uncles play various musical instruments, guitar, banjo, mandolin, that kind of thing. Uh, and I desperately wanted to be able to, and I just can't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have that talent. That is not what I was given. And so my parents knew that I was interested in music, so they put me in piano lessons thinking maybe this is a good way to go. And it really was. Um, through doing that, I started to gain uh, musical knowledge both in theory and as well as in what was out there. And one day found myself listening to Chopin and had never heard anything like that before and fell absolutely head over heels. And so I started getting into different recordings. I wanted all of the recordings of Chopin I could find. <laughs> and I was also doing choir at the time. So I thought, well, you know, throw some opera in there as well. So, you know, for birthdays and Christmas, I would ask for CDs, just classical CDs and Italian compilation aria CDs. <laughs> and the first aria I ever heard was Una Voce Poco Fa uh, with Anamolfo singing it. And I thought, wow, I really want to do that. I really want to I really want to make my voice do that kind of thing. And hilariously enough, I don't sing Rossini. That's <laughs> <laughs> that isn't what I do. No. <laughs> but that being the case, uh it definitely led me directly down the path to me finding what I do and what I absolutely love. And uh so that's how I got here. It is time for our YouTube picks. Every week we bring you some of our favorite videos so that you can become even more familiar with the opera. Corey, what did you bring for us? Well, it has to be Vapensiero because, uh, you know, there's no way to get away from it. That is the hit tune of the piece. Even though there are so many great arias and so many great recordings of them floating around on YouTube. But Vapensiero, the one that I felt was, was really first and foremost among many good ones, is the one that comes from 2011, the Rome opera with Riccardo Muti conducting. And it's the quite famous by now occasion where he took the opportunity uh, when he was going to encore Vapensiero to stop and address the audience briefly between the first performance of the chorus and the encore to talk about the importance of, of culture in Italy to the Italian nation and drew a parallel with the text of Vapensiero and the situation of the funding of the arts and made a case that the arts continue to be funded in, in Italy. And then we see the chorus reprise Vapensiero and this video pans in on them, and beyond the fact that they sing it divinely, they're just all in tears. They're so moved. And you can also hear the audience singing along a little bit. Mm. So it's it's a, not only a great performance of Vapentiero, but it's kind of a, a, a very moving and uh, important historical document. I can't wait to hear that. Marin, what about you? I chose a video of Donna Kise, which is a, a, a duet between Nabucco and Abigail. 
And in this case, uh, this video is of Placido Domingo singing, who's also singing at the Met right now. And Ludmila Monastirka is singing Abigail in this video. Um, this is right after she's produced and ripped up this document that says that she's a slave. It's right after Nabucco learns that he's effectively sent his true daughter to her death. And it really shows the differences in these two characters, the differences in their mindset. Nabucco is distraught and miserable and singing long, woeful lines. And Abigail is triumphant and victorious. Uh, and the power dynamic between these two, it's just extraordinary to watch. You can check out all of the YouTube clips on the He Sang, She Sang show page at wqxr.org. Leave us a comment. Tell us what you thought about the show. And if you liked what you heard, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. He Sang, She Sang is a production of Classical New York, WQXR. I'm Mike Schaub. And I'm Marin Lazian. Thank you for listening.